Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, Andrew Dewing will talk you through the current market, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice. He will also be interviewing a leader in the world of agriculture and finishing up with Farm Chat, which includes his favourite bit, where he tastes beer for free. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and his market report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market Report, week commencing 4th of March 2019. Are you getting fed up with me being sort of negative on prices? If so, you better switch off now. This morning, at point of recording, I'm, I'm feeling quite bearish to this market. Again, it's dropped a hell of a long way. It's all been kind of going down without any farmer participation. I even tweeted that this week, which is very modern of me. The market has just, it just doesn't seem to have many friends. There's buyers of spot wheat at a reasonable premium. You know, so X farm feed wheat for this coming week is probably about 160, 161. And it's probably not worth much more than that for April or May. So it's it's kind of like the same price for May now. And there really aren't that many buyers of it. As you look ahead, it's very hard to find a good buyer of April, May, June wheat. And I would love to be selling some of that because I've got a lot of May wheat bought from farm, which hasn't yet got an official home to it. So I'm kind of hoping that the two will match up soon. But it's, uh, it's always a concern when you haven't got the homes, homes locked in. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I think the prospects at the moment with the pound fundamentally going upwards and uh, it looks like we're going to extend Brexit uh, negotiations or whatever you want to call it extend the mess we're heading into a period of further price dropping i think there is a big debate about whether there's too much old crop wheat or not the biggest thing that's influencing my mind is if we extend um the article 50 and we don't have tariffs on imports the maths dictate that in july you can buy french new crop wheat at about 12 13 pounds less than liverpool is paying at the moment for for wheat in other words the mill up in Manchester, Liverpool, can buy French wheat, arrival late July, at £12 cheaper than the UK market's worth. And that is, to use an analogy, is like shutting the, the, the gate at the back of the paddock. There's no escape now. For me, that means that the market will be unable to rally dramatically at the very end because we'll have replacement stuff coming in cheaper. So that's the final straw, I'm afraid. It, the, the maths can be put right by a surplus of new crop tonnage coming our way from France. So old crop isn't going to rush through the floor. I, I, I get it that it's quite hard to buy because farmers aren't really playing at the moment, but it means that the upside is, is incredibly limited and probably we've got some more downsides to come. New crop, I'm sorry, it's rained a little bit. There's there's a bit more rain in the forecast. You have to trade a drought when the drought is occurring and we are trading a perfect crop we are trading perfect conditions with everybody up to date planting being done fertilizer on people begin to kick their heels because they're probably waiting for the land to warm up a bit for spuds and sugar beet Uh, i'm afraid cereals are in a1 condition and consequently it means that prices have got to be looked at farmers have not been engaged in this recent period of price drop which means they've still got the crop to sell when they get off their tractors and stop listening to our podcast so yeah I'm afraid new crop prices are also not very healthy. So currently, new crop November wheat is 139x. It's broken 140. Therefore, 
people will sell for December 140 or January for 140 because it's a psychological level. I'm afraid I think we are going to see it drift or drip drip downwards a bit further. So glum news on that one. Let's go on to Feed Barley and get even more miserable. Feed Barley is on its backside on Old Crop. It's 130x farm. That's a £10 drop in two weeks on top of a £20 drop we've seen since early January. So that one has had it. I don't want to say any more about that, really. New crop, equally under pressure, probably harvest about 120x. Still a good price historically. Again, we are still waiting for clarity on, on Brexit and exports and so on. But yet, yeah, not looking very grim. How can I cheer you up? Um, I can't. So, oilseed rate, currency is going up, it's undermining the price. So, old crop is now 300. The dreams of uh, 330 are, uh, I think, a fantasy. I don't think necessarily that's going to go down much. There's not that much more to trade, but sub 300 is going to be very unpalatable. And there's a high chance we're heading that way if the pound keeps going up. And as far as new crop is concerned, it is still 300 for harvest movement, in our opinion. Again, we've got a plant in the office now that we picked out of someone's field, which has got the bud forming and the, you know you can almost see the leaves coming out and it's, it's, it's only just turned into March. So the crop is well forward. Lots of flea beetle talk, lots of troubles about acreage in the ground and so on, but it's 300 pound a ton for harvest movement and uh, I think that's going to take a bit of ignoring. I'm nervous about that one, especially with a stronger pound. So probably the glummest, most miserable price aspect market report we've had for a long time. So don't, uh, don't look forward to being too cheerful in the next seven days. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. Crush Foods produces a unique range of single variety cold pressed rapeseed oils. All their seed is grown here in Norfolk. They only press a single variety for its taste and they believe that this is what gives the oil the light, nutty flavour people like. Available in local shops across Norfolk, Suffolk and beyond. Visit crush-foods.com for more information. And now it's time for our feature. This week... Claire has gone to interview Andrew Fern, who is the Professor of Value Chain Management at the UEA, which for the non-Norfolk types is the University of East Anglia. During the interview, apparently, Andrew suggested there's no real place for a grain merchant. Now, obviously, we've edited that out because we all know that's not true. But um, it, it's tweaked my interest enough to say that I hope to be going back to actually record that debate between he and I. So um, over to you, Claire. I know you're an expert on value chains. Can you explain the difference between a supply chain and a value chain? Yeah, sure. The supply chain, the, the emphasis is on production, what we have to dispose of. So we've grown these crops, we've manufactured these products, we have them in store or we will have them available. Um, where can we get rid of them, dispose of them? Where can we sell them? Whereas the value chain starts with um, what is it that people are interested in that we might subsequently grow, manufacture, source and distribute? So it's a question really of um, focus and resource allocation. So the individual links in the chain might be identical, whether you're looking at them as from a value chain or a supply chain perspective. The difference is in how they behave and how they allocate resources. Very, 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 very often in a supply chain context, 
the allocation of resources is around efficiency, cost minimization, waste reduction, um, to m enable us to compete um, at the lowest possible price. Uh, whereas with the value chain, it's kind of um, taken for granted that resources should never be wasted. But the starting point is to ask, what is it that different um, customers and consumers are willing to pay for. So if you can identify groups of customers or consumers, so by a customer I might mean, for example, a retailer who's the gatekeeper to the consumers, right. um, there are different customers who are willing to pay for different things. So you have an opportunity there to add value, gain higher prices if you allocate resources that meet their needs. Whereas if you're focusing totally on just being efficient, the tendency is to miss those opportunities because you're not even looking for them the gold you're digging for is actually more like metal and it's not precious metal because you're just digging yourself into a deeper and deeper hole trying to be as efficient as you can to extract as as much margin as you possibly can for whatever someone's going to pay you for this commodity so if you were a farmer growing like the typical crops of the area so wheat barley rapeseed oil sugar beet that kind of thing how would you do things differently from how they might be doing them at the moment? Well, first of all, I am the son of a pig farmer from Kent, not from Norfolk. Um, but I did realise somewhere about the age of 18 or 19 that I didn't want to be a farmer forever. So I'm glad I'm not a farmer uh, right now, even though I had the most wonderful, um, informative years working on the farm. Um, but I do wonder sometimes how um, kind of traditional... I need to be careful because um, I'm from Kent. So do I? Uh, there, may, there may be you know, secrets of arable farming in Norfolk that I'm completely oblivious to, in which case somebody will respond to the podcast and put me right, I'm quite sure. Um, but I wonder how they continue year after year to make money if all they do is to continue to grow the crops they've always grown in a certain rotation because the soil requires it. Um, unless they manage to survive purely because... One year in X, maybe it was one year in three, and then it became one year in five, and now one year in whatever it is, we get a bumper, either a bumper crop or a crop failure somewhere else, which means we make a huge amount of money that sees us through the next N years of you know low commodity prices and, and us not making very much money. Um, and at, le at least not not unless we receive some subsidies, which are about to go. So I'd be I personally would look at my soil, um, think about um, all the things I could do with my soil, with a view to trying to grow, um, uh, allocate some portion of my farm to crops that were truly new, and or had some scope for attracting premiums so it may well be initially that if let's say um i might just take 10 percent of my cropping area and i would and i, and I would um allocate that 10 percent to every year to some experimental um crops or indeed some experimental varieties where the end goal was purely to identify opportunities for 
commanding a price premium because I was doing something that my neighbors were struggling to do or hadn't even thought of, or I was growing something for a particular customer, for a particular food manufacturer, for a particular country, for a particular group of consumers, for a particular production process. So it's highly tailored. And if they knew I was doing it for them, and I was doing my very best to do it precisely in the way that they did, I might just be able to attract a premium, which initially might not be enough to offset the losses I was making on the rest of my farm. But if I continue to do this over a number of years, the theory would go like prospecting, I would um, find a, uh, a crop that I could grow in my land, in my soil, where I am in this country, that would give me an opportunity to not be relying on subsidies and not be a pure price taker, taking whatever the market dictated and hoping after you know 12 months or whatever it was when I just finally disposed of the products and that I made some money. So I tried to be more, I would definitely be uh, more proactive than I perceive many traditional arable farmers being, to invest in crops and processes, enterprises that were new. Not just new to me, uh, but new to the market, um, and probably as hard to grow as possible so that the barriers to other people doing it um, were quite high. And if I think, um, Claire, about you know, over the years, the farmers that I've, you know, many, many hundreds of farmers around the world that I've engaged with and had conversations with and visited, um, then the ones that stand out are the ones that have managed to do the difficult to do things that other farmers have decided they're not going to do. And I would argue that um, the rational explanation for that is that for the last 25 years or 30 years at least, they haven't had to because subsidies have taken away the need to um, to, to try new things. I do fundamentally believe that necessity is the mother of invention. So here we are now, literally you know, a month, four weeks away from Brexit, unless you know there is a postponement. It's only a matter of time before the safety blanket that we've had, you know, thirty years um, to get used to, is going to be swept away. At the farming conference, I think a lot of people came away from from your very interesting speech with a kind of feeling that maybe. Um, provenance wasn't such a big deal and that from your research that actually it was much more about price and I, I could sort of hear them in the you know at lunchtime kind of you know a bit like oh well, well it turns out people don't really care where things come from you know da, da, da. and I suppose the only thing that farmers feel that they can often offer offer is is provenance is you know is being able to explain where it's come from and, and be proud of like how it was grown or how it was looked after or what have you so I was sort of wondering whether whether we'd got the right message and whether that was you know really your your big kind of thing was that actually the price is really important so um there are actually two big points there the first one is simply about assumptions. So what the message I was trying to convey at the Norfolk Farming Conference and continue to convey daily um, to my students as well as farmers and food producers and retailers, every stakeholder in the food chain is to stop making assumptions. People make assumptions nine times out of ten because it suits them to do so. So wouldn't it be great if our, if consumers really, really cared about where stuff if, uh, came from? Because if they did, they'd have so much more interest in where stuff came from and might even be willing to pay for stuff that came from a certain place that they're interested in. 
But but the point I wanted to make and continue to make and I'm making now is that that's not the case for the majority of people. So we must stop talking about consumers as a homogeneous mass. I think um, you know, farmers would be absolutely mortified if um, if I was to suggest for one minute that all farmers are the same and started to talk about farmers, even arable farmers as the same, even arable farmers in Norfolk as the same, because I'm quite sure there are arable farmers in Norfolk that are like this and there are arable farmers in Norfolk that are like that. So why would we continually talk about consumers as if they are one homogeneous group of people that care passionately about where stuff comes from, how it's produced, and want to keep farming alive and profitable um, on on our land Um, because the reality is that there are significant numbers of consumers I would say well over half of the people that are making decisions every day about what to buy and what to feed themselves and their families that are not remotely interested directly explicitly in where stuff has come from and how it has been produced Um, and so it's dangerous, I think, and I would argue even naive um, uh, to just assume that people care because we have invested in assurance schemes or labeling schemes or certification schemes um, to communicate where stuff has come from. Um, that's point number one. So point number two then is, so is, all, is it the case that all they really care about is price? Well, if it's the case that 50-odd percent, over half of consumers don't care um, and fundamentally do care more about the price than anything else, so therefore can't resist an offer as they enter the supermarket, pushing their toys up and down the aisle. They may enter the supermarket thinking about the joys and wonders of uh, Norfolk agriculture and Norfolk food and may plan to fill their basket with Norfolk-grown produce only to enter with stuff that's imported all around the world because it either looks good um, or it was on a special offer or in fact, um, they thought it was um, because it, they bought it from a supermarket that talks a lot about you know, homegrown produce and has got union jacks everywhere. So just assumed that the stuff they're picking up off the shelves was all homegrown, when in fact it isn't. So, um, however, if that's half, that's or more than half, let's say it's two-thirds, that still needs a third, and I think there's something like 60 million households in this country, that's a lot of people that do care. So right. I was definitely not saying that nobody cares. What I was saying is that do not assume that everybody cares, which takes us right back to where we started like 20 minutes ago around the value chain. If you start by asking the question, what am I growing for who? Next link in the chain, processor, manufacturer, even trader. Where is it going to end up? That might just make me think twice before doing what I've always done and wondering why I don't make enough as a result. So don't make assumptions about who is willing to pay what for what and how much. Um, But there are plenty of people and the world's a big place, and the UK's a big enough place too, um, who are interested, but you've got to be targeting them um, very specifically. And the kind of challenging thing is that many of those target markets from a retail perspective are already being met. You know, So the average Waitrose and M&S shopper are more concerned about where stuff comes from and how it's been produced than the average you know, Asda, Morrison's, Tesco, et al. Uh, shopper. Um, so getting into those high-end retail um, markets is really quite difficult now. Um, 
unless you believe, as I desperately want to believe, that e-commerce offers huge opportunities, which it does. So selling direct to consumers, if e-commerce is set to grow from the 8% of, of food sales that it currently commands to, many, to much more, then that offers great opportunities for farmers who, who still might be thinking and listening to this podcast, but what can we do about that? And the answer is you have to invest. You can't just sit on your tractor, growing your seeds, hoping that somebody cares enough about you, your soil, and where you are and what you're producing. You have to invest time and effort at least in thinking about where I'm going to sell, um, what I'm growing this for, who, where. Um, but ideally, the next step would be to put the, to invest in um, the next link and the next link and the next link in the chain so that you get closer to the final point of consumption. Because as you move down the supply chain, the opportunity exists for you to capture more of the value um, in the supply chain. That's very interesting. And I, I think you're also like... Mr. Tesco Club Card Man, is that right? Or um, uh, <laughs> well, I'd hate that to be, um, be what people think of me as. However, I've now I've been working on a research project for fourteen years, where um, we have we uh, gain access to Tesco's Club Card data. We package that up um, for small businesses, so that's food and farming businesses who want to get a better understanding of who's buying the food that they that, that Tesco sells. Um, and we've done that you know, at no cost to any uh, small food producer or farmer for 14 years. So you've made the club card information useful to, to quite small businesses kind of thing, rather than, I suppose, we, when, when we use the club card, you always feel slightly exploited every time you use it because you think, oh, they're, they're tracking me and they're working out exactly what I've eaten and da 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 but it's there is funny. some quite useful yeah, it's things funny, for it. Claire, you say that because over the years, I don't do so much now, but I used to do you know so much um, primary research. So I'd be in focus groups with consumers and project after project. There'd always be somebody in a group that would say, yes, you know, I buy you know some wacky product because I'm determined to catch them out. <laughs> when the reason that they signed up for the club card in the first place was because they know they're going to get. Um, offers for the very foods that they like and that's why tesco and the club card was so successful because they saw what you bought instead of offering you discount on red wine they gave you discount on the merlot that they know you like thank you very much i'll buy some more of that please so it's like it's funny that um they're definitely the big brother thing is rumbling in the background um, but we're almost kind of over that now because everyone knows everything almost about all of us. We just yeah. don't know. That we do. It's just that with a, a physical entity like a, a loyalty card, it, you can see uh, and it does concern you. But to get back to your point, there's no question that the purpose of the club card is to help Tesco make sure they've got the right things on the shelves because we can see who is buying what, to thank customers for shopping in their stores and to keep them shopping in the stores because that's how they make money. Yeah, the there was a secondary benefit, which wasn't the reason that the club card was introduced back in 1994, which was to help suppliers understand better the people who bought the brands that they sell through Tesco's 
infrastructure. So for suppliers to invest in that data to understand you know, who, what kind of person is buying my product, with what else, how do they respond if we change the pack size, change the price, change the information, if we advertise or promote, um, that helps suppliers allocate their resources so much more effectively when selling to Tesco than they would be able to do if they were selling to another retailer about whom they knew far less when it comes to the shoppers going into the other retailers' stores. So I've often thought to myself, if I had a food business, I would want to get a listing in Tesco just so I could get the club card data. Who would be telling me factually exact who is who is that who are the people buying my product? Young or older, rich or poorer, your family size, location, how often do they buy? And if I change things, how do they respond? Not based on what they say, back to do people really care where stuff comes from, but what they do. It's incredibly valuable information, but only if you care enough, that you want to know enough, that you're going to change what you do as a result. Right. Which I don't think enough traditional Norfolk arable farmers do. Now it's time for Farm Chat. Right, beer this week. I'm going to have a little rant about that. I went to the fridge where we had a special can of beer provided by Teddy Morph. I was looking forward to it. And when I got there, the cupboard was bare. So we had an inquest. Ben, who nicked the beer? I think we need to ask Ian Webster because he grasped up the person that nicked it. So it wasn't Ian Webster. Was it you? No, it wasn't me. That narrows it down a bit, doesn't right. it? Yes. Was he related to me? Yes. <laughs> and were there two beers in there? Apparently. Yes. And so we've ended up raiding... We even went over Ollie's desk looking for a beer, and we couldn't find any there, for, which is unusual. And we in, went into the cupboard and found one that obviously no one ever fancied drinking. <laughs> it possibly could be very nice, so this may be a, a lucky discovery. So we're going to open a bottle of... Banana Bread Beer. Brewed by? Brewed by Wells. A malt beverage brewed with bananas and banana flavour added. (laughs) 5.2%. Yeah, Charles Wells. Right, here we go. Here we go. I've already opened it. (laughs) So it's not going to fizz. Okay, right. That's it. Don't be too generous. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's the right colour. Smells of beer. Well, and banana. <laughs> I don't, well, over to you. <laughs> that, that's a very banana-tasting beer, Ben. <laughs> yes. It's well, it's banana and beer. I think we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Anyway, well, I'm glad we had a bottle of beer left in the fridge. Josh? <laughs> right, moving on. We were having a real debate about what to talk about, and um, I, I had a rant, and I feel like having a rant this morning, so, I mean, uh, here we go. Shall I go? No, no. <laughs> Because you, you've got hair, despite it being ginger, it's, it's still there. I went in to get my hair cut yesterday, and as many of you will know, there's not a lot of hair there. I had to get it It doesn't cut. take long. <laughs> it doesn't take long. That's the point. So I went in, and I sat down, <laughs> and there were three people sitting in the chairs having their hair cut. Right, one of them, the bloke was whizzing through this little kid's hair, boom, boom, out. Next guy went and sat down, gone, you know, he was, he was not messing around. The other two blokes who were in their 20s, 
was sitting in that stool for at least an hour. I waited an hour while they were just sitting there. One of them looked like Giant Haystack, which is a, an old wrestler who had Yeah, I know hair. that, yeah. yeah? And he, he, he was being preened. Do, do you do that, Ben? Do you sit no, there? look at me. I've got ginger hair and I'm losing it, but not as badly as you. I'm, I'm losing losing something. <laughs> my hair's gone. I'm already losing. But, but you know, hair is it's it's the new thing, isn't it, for lots of young people? What sitting there like a uh, don't say the word, <laughs> uh, but just sitting there being preen. Well, I've actually for most men, it's probably a chance to get away from their wives and girlfriends. But anyway, I doubt the bloke with all the hair and the beard and everything had a girlfriend. But he sat there. <laughs> it's his only opportunity to be stroked. I mean, it was verging on. Oh, come on. He was just so into it. It was like, he sat there just like, like Cheshire Cat going, oh, this is lovely. No, he wasn't talking like that. Where did you get your hair cut? Oh, no, don't name the place. Well, uh, barbers in, in the city. But, okay. you know, so my point is, at what point did a bloke stop going into a barber's and say, can you cut me hair, mate? And expecting to be there for no more than 10 minutes. At what point do, does it turn into this... This well, it's like my mum going to a salon in the in you know years ago, sitting there for hours on end with whatever being done. It's well, I think this is equal rights. You know, women go and have a haircut for two hours. I wouldn't. You wouldn't. How long does your haircut? haircut oh, blimey, what? Fifteen minutes? Twenty? Well, yeah, minutes? Well, that's right. Okay, so you're a bloke. You go in and you say, right, bit off there, bit off there. You yeah. know, try and make it look like I got some comb over. Whatever yeah. you do, <laughs> try and dye it if you can. <laughs> Can you take can you take the ginger out? <laughs> Put those Stuart Stuart Granger sideburns on. Um No, but that but to me it's it's really sad. Hang on a minute, you were annoyed because you were waiting. If you weren't there, would you have a problem with it? It's like if a tree falls in a forest and there was a no, you would I, it wouldn't annoy you, would it? I, I was irritated by waiting, I, I get yes. that. But I mean, the other, the other guy had his hair basically shaved up both sides and his big long bit on top, which, what was the point of that anyway? You know, he's not, never going to header a football without the hair flicking in his eyes, so he can't be... He's just got this thing on his head, and the bloke doing his hair flopped it from one side to the other, and I thought, oh, he's finished now. Nope, out came the water, spray, spray, spray. What the hell did you do that for? Snip, snip, snip. He was snipping thin air, and they were having a love in. It was... How did you stay quiet for so long while this was going I started, on? I, I started doing an old bloke thing. I started oh, did you? going, oh, really? Yeah. And like, no, I, I found myself doing it. <laughs> terrible. That is terrible. Yes, yeah, so I can imagine you sitting at the back grunting away. And then at the end of the time, oh, the bloke God. had sat there for an hour. Right. He only charged him a tenner. I thought... Oh, hang on. Now, that's, now that's really commercially well, more... Well, perhaps that's it. a student rate. Did you get an OAP rate? <laughs> I got less than a tenner because there's, there's only three hairs to cut. <laughs> But I, I, my 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 rant, other than the fact that my that my son Nick the beer was supposed to be drinking, which was very hurtful, very very disappointing, yeah, and took the other bottle with him, so he, and is and is on holiday, and he's got the day off, yeah, so yeah, he's probably drinking it now, isn't he? Unaware, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I'm I'm saddened, I'm truly saddened at the attitude of modern man. I appreciate I'm not a modern man. All the grooming they do, and, and that leaves my, the mind boggling. To what end? Where do you end up? Eyeliner and blusher? Or is yeah. it already happening? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a modern man. I sometimes go out in grubby clothes and my wife has a go at me. And yeah. I say, but I'm married and I've got children. 
What I don't need to make. It sounds like Webby's wooing skills coming out. You've been working with him tonight. Does Webby wear makeup? Because he he's quite spends a lot. Oh of no, time he, with... no, he's got hand cream, hasn't he? Oh, he has a lot of hand cream. He likes a hand cream. Doesn't he have skin products? Yes, he does have a few. It's debatable when he uses them, but yeah, I don't. He's got a drawer, that drawer that is always yeah. a bit secretive with lots of stuff. And sometimes in. hard to open that drawer. Should we go into that drawer and have a little look? See if he's got other products. Blusher. I'm not sure. <laughs> Right, anyway, I appreciate that, that I'm out of touch and I haven't got any hair and all the rest of it, but come on, you young blokes, man up a bit. Go in the barbers, tell the bloke you can't be more than 15 minutes, get a haircut, it'll be look just the same, your face is the same, therefore, you know, what are you trying to achieve? What is the difference that a bit of poncing up on the top of your head's going to do? Just get, get real, get out there and, I don't know, get a job. <laughs> There we go. That was a party political broadcast for the Andrew Dewing party. Yeah, well, I've enjoyed the banter, so thanks, Ben. I appreciate you listening. Yeah, well, yes, I'm going to go away and sit in a dark room now and drink some more banana beer. Yeah, well, go and get a haircut. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at dewinggrain. The Dewing Grain Podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio. 